Thank you, Shauna. Hello, everybody. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's good to see you all here this morning. I don't know which one of you is responsible for kicking off the snow gods, but knock it off because we've had enough now. Crying out loud. Reminds me of Minnesota when I was young. Always snowing. It's just constantly coming down. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Not. We've had enough. But anyways, we're here. That's uh, what's important. We uh, are going a little off script here these days. I was supposed to get into the book of Luke, go back to the book of Luke, uh, the beginning of the year, and just felt led to go in a little different direction in light of just some of the struggling that was going on in some people's lives during the holiday season. So we started on talking about just the, the legitimacy, the okayness of wrestling with God, being honest about that. It's okay to have issues that, that you're working through. In fact, that's why Jacob was renamed Israel and why they were called the Israelites, because the term means struggling with God. It's a distinctive mark of the people of God is that we're all loud and real uh, with uh, some of the struggles that we uh, go through. Then last week we talked about faith and doubt. And something about that message um, hit a chord. It, it, it's, it activated something in me and in a number of other people um, where it just had a sense of some of the terms that folks used were game changer or uh, it just revolutionizes everything. It was just felt huge. It felt huge. And uh, actually, as I've looked at this, the, the, just the concept of faith that we put out there last week, um, I've talked on that before at different times, but I never I really made it a, a distinct topic in and of itself. And it, it, it just struck me that we're saying something that is really necessary to say uh, that is rarely set out there, but has the potential to set a lot of people free. And so uh, the team that deals with kind of the content of messages felt like, like we're supposed to just park here for a little bit and hover on this. Uh, last week we talked about the, the error of and the, the, the damage that's caused when we think of faith as though it was certainty and the absence of, of doubt. And so we went, we're going to stay on this for a little bit. Uh, don't know how long, we, you know, this is going to be one of these series that sort of define itself as we, we uh, uh, go along here. Maybe another couple of weeks, uh, maybe a month, maybe another couple of years. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But it raised a lot of questions that people have. What about this verse and what about that verse? So, so we're just going to kind of hover on this topic. In fact, uh, today I'm going to cover some of the same material I covered last week, but from a, 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 just a sort of a different angle. As very much of a teaching message, I want you to be paying close, close attention. Take notes if that helps you remember, and it does for a lot of people. Uh, this is stuff we just got to have to internalize. For some folks, it's going to be a, a complete different way of looking at things. A game changer. And uh, has the potential, as I said, to let, set a lot of people free. I'm titling this message, Losing the Faith Game. And you'll see what kind of game I'm talking about here in a minute. And uh, I want to read from the book of Mark. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. A few days later, it says, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, because that's where he was from. They gathered gathered in such large numbers that there's no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of his friends. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... It's too crowded. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus, no, no, notice this, saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, 
So I want to chew a little bit on this concept of the visibility of faith. Faith as something that you can see, something that you can observe. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, uh, many of us and many of those listening uh, through podcasts, television, other, other means, have been, without knowing it, unwittingly put in bondage by a concept of faith that is just not biblical or helpful. And I pray, Lord God, that you would set the captives free, that you would, God, open our eyes and hearts and minds to really recover a biblical understanding of faith. This is so, so profoundly foundational. Uh, God, I have a sense of gravity about this, importance about this, and I pray, Lord, that you help me just release this and trust your spirit to do the work that words can never do. Uh, Give this message your authority, Lord God. Just infuse it with your power and use it to build the kingdom in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Confront what needs to be confronted, tear down what needs to be torn down, heal what needs to be healed. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I, I do like amens. I've always, you know, it, it's a way of letting me know that you're there and, and that you're tracking with me. And so I, I'm totally cool with folks going yes and amen or whoa or I'm just not cool with saying jerk or something like that. No, it, as long as it's positive, it, it, it helps. So amen and amen. So as we said uh, last week, most people in Western culture anyways, in, in the last several centuries anyways, but never more so than now, most folks assume that faith is the absence of doubt. Faith is psychological certainty. Your faith is as strong as you are free of doubts. Your faith is as strong as you are convinced that you are right. And see, that's why most folks think that faith is the antithesis of or the opposite of doubt or wrestling with God. Can't be doing both. And so we introduced last week the whole idea of the faithometer. We have this faithometer understanding of faith where uh, it, it's sort of like the, the more certain you can make yourself, the, the more the faithometer goes from absolute uh, uh, disbelief to absolute belief over on the right. It's the faithometer concept. And our job is to sort of convince ourselves it's true. We, we are the, the lion on the Wizard of Oz going, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. In you. And, and, and that's a virtuous thing to do, to try to talk yourself into it. And to get that faithometer meter reading up there into the red zone. And so if, if this has been your model of, of faith, and it is for a whole lot of people, well then you read the Bible through those lens. And so when you come upon a verse, for example, that says, according to your faith, be it unto you. Several people ask me about that verse uh, last week. What about that verse? It seems like it's measuring faith. According to your faith, be it unto you. What, what, what you hear when you read that is, is you hit the requisite level. You did it. You, you, you got your faith up there into the right zone. So if, if you got your faith up there in the green zone, you know, that's sort of like the, the realm of salvation. You had enough faith to have salvation. According to your faith, be it unto you. But man, when you get into the 70 percentile, now, now you're into the blessing zone. So God will help you find the good parking spots and your sports team will win a little bit more often and, 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 and you'll get the best deals at Target. And, and if you keep on believing, press it up there, press it up there, maybe you'll even get into the healing zone. You know, when you're in the 90 percent range and you're really certain, well, now, now you're able to get some really good healing and stuff like that and if you want to win the lottery you got to be 100 percent, you know so so good luck on that one but but you know so it's just like you got to push it up there push it up there lying on the wizard of oz i do believe i do believe i do believe and the more certain you are the more you're going to get and so jesus heals a blind man and says according to your faith be it unto you and 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 what what we what we hear if we're looking at this through the the lens of our faithometer theology what we hear is 
You got the, the meter reader up there enough to receive your healing for blindness, so now you can see. Unfortunately, that also then means that if you uh, didn't get healed, it's because you didn't get the faithometer up there. It's your fault. If you would have had enough faith, you would have been healed. Uh, or if you had enough faith, you would not be disabled in other ways, or you wouldn't be broke and poor. Faithometer theology ultimately blames the victim. It's, it's your fault. It's your fault. Uh, it is a devastating, psychologically devastating, tormenting, psychologically, psychological gimmickry sort of model of faith. It torments you. Uh, because, see, it's not just that, that if you had enough faith, you would be healed, and you would, you would be out of the wheelchair, and you'd be able to see, and you wouldn't be poor, but your kid wouldn't be uh, blind. If you had enough faith, your kid would be out of the wheelchair. If you had enough faith, your kid wouldn't have died in the car accident. I've seen this theology devastate people. I've seen it uh, just drive people into despair. I've known several people who have committed suicide as a result of this theology, and yet it's all over the place. Tormenting. The Wizard of Oz lion trying to talk yourself into believing. And, and so much is at stake. Heaven and hell is at stake. The, whether your kid's going to be able to see or not, that's at stake. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. If it didn't happen, it's, it's your own fault. And if you think about it now, if you think about it, this idea that faith is about talking yourself into something, who would be good at that? The people who would be good at that. And God bless them. No, but, but people who would be simple, they, they, they can talk themselves into believing a reality. Or people who are delusional are able to very effectively talk themselves into believing certain things that are true, even if they, on a different level, don't really believe it. Uh, folks who are more rational and grounded in reality are going to have a tough time with this. So it's... Not surprising, really. If, if that's the model of faith that's dominant out there, that, that, that model of faith sort of self-selects out the well-grounded rational people and self-selects in the simple and delusional people. And once you get that, you're going to not be surprised any longer that so many wacko things are said in Jesus' name. <laughs> and they get on the news. You know, if it appears to you as you watch the news and listen to the radio and you hear about some of the things Christians say, uh, in Jesus' name, if it occurs to you that most evangelical Christians are loony, it might be because they are. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what your theory is on why the birds died in Arizona, but I'm telling you, I'm just, I'm just saying. I, it's like so much of the stuff that gets on the news, well, it, it makes sort of sense. If this is, the heroes here are the ones who are able to do the, wizard, the lion on the Wizard of Oz thing really, really well. I do believe, I do, and they think something is true. One of the reasons why the, this kind of magical view of faith or this psychological gimmetry view of faith is faithometer theology. One of the reasons it's so popular in Western culture is it fits in very well with our overall paradigm of our relationship with God. We've talked about this before here at Woodland Hills Church a number of times. We in the West tend to construe everything, understand everything, in sort of a court of law paradigm, a legal paradigm. Uh, we understand faith and salvation and everything. In a, in a paradigm where God is the judge and we're the defendants and we're guilty and, and the main goal is to be acquitted and the main objective of life is to keep from ticking off the judge so we can stay acquitted. That's the, the, the main paradigm that uh, we've, we've operated in at least since the Reformation, this legal paradigm. And if, so if you bring this faithometer theology into that paradigm, what you end up with is, is God is the judge but he's really the meter reader. Okay, and, and what God does is he's always looking at our faithometer. 
and, and, and checking us out. And our job is to impress him by getting that faithometer up there. Uh, I, you know, the, the mere salvation zone, you know, that, that's acceptable, but we want to get into the, I get the special parking lot uh, zone, and then eventually into the healing zone, and maybe even to the I win the lottery zone. But God is the meter reader. How you doing? So if you register enough faith for things, you're saved. If you register enough faith for things, you get the spouse that you're praying for, or you get the healing, or you get the jackpot, or whatever. Salvation in this paradigm, this legal paradigm, this faithometer paradigm, salvation comes to mean something like we're on a faithometer prisoner release program. A faithometer prison release program. We had enough faith to get released. Uh, the trouble is, we're not told clearly what the terms of the release are. We're on release, we're on probation, but, but what are the terms? Which is to say, what exactly do we need to believe and how strongly do we need to believe it to stay acquitted? And since heaven and hell is at stake here, or at least whether your child's going to see or not or get out of the wheelchair, since a whole lot's at stake, you can understand why people, uh, at least some people, obsess on this. So much is at stake, and yet we just don't know for sure what are we supposed to believe and how strongly do we need to believe it. Am I believing all the right things, and, I believe, and, 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 and am I believing them uh, strong enough to get the blessing, to stay saved? I mentioned uh, that, that several months ago, a lady, one of the things that got me thinking about this series is the lady, dear lady who came up and she says, you know, I believe the Bible, I believe in Jesus, I'm just not sure about all the stories in the Bible, if, if, if they're all inspired or if they're all to be taken literally, am I still saved if I'm wrong? And see, that's the, that's the thinking, that tormenting thinking that I, I'm, I'm addressing here. Am I believing all the right things? Do I believe them strong enough? And see, on, on this model of faith, put in this Western paradigm, the stakes are so high. Stakes are so high. It's like in this faith, faithometer prison release program, everything you believe and everything you don't believe can, be, can and will be used against you in a court of heavenly law. But we're not told exactly what the terms are, so it can make us very nervous. How, how high do I have to register on the faithometer? I know I need to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Got that? Okay, but how, how, how high up there does it have to be and how consistently? Is 92% going to cut it? Uh, what if on some days it's 92%, but other days it's only 51%? Uh, you know, uh, what, what happens then? And the trouble is we don't really have access to any faithometer, so we really don't know how we're standing. What, what if I'm believing some wrong things? Well, what if I'm believing right things but just not strong enough? What if I'm not 100% sure that the Bible is inerrant? Well, what if I'm like 87% confused about that question? I don't even know what it means. Am I still in? Do I still cut it? And what if I'm not 100% sure that all the stories are supposed to be taken literally? What if I'm, I'm like 80% confident that some kind of evolution is true, but what if that turns out to be wrong? Am, am I still going to be in? Uh, what if I'm not sure that all the stories are, are supposed to be taken as, 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 as little descriptions of what happened? Well, what if I got the wrong view of the end times? What if I'm wrong about predestination? What if I'm wrong about foreknowledge? What if I'm wrong about hell? What if I'm just not quite certain of the traditional view of hell? Am I still in? Do I still have my acquittal? Am I cut out of all the blessings? And see, those are all important issues and interesting issues and issues that can affect our life. But see, what happens in the faithometer theology is, is we're betting the house on every single one of them, or at least we might be betting the house on every single one of them. The healing of your child and maybe even your salvation hangs in the balance here. It's all part of the faithometer prison release program. And just to make it more fun, there's plenty of heavenly probation officers running around in various churches that will tell you what the criteria are. Somehow they know. 
They know and they'll be very happy to tell you whether you make the grade or not. Somehow they can just inspect these sorts of things. So I've been taken off the Faithometer prison release program in the minds of, of some for, for a number of infractions. Have the wrong view of sovereignty, uh, wrong view of foreknowledge, out. Uh, wrong view of hell or just not confident enough in the right view of hell, out. Uh, I am mistaken about uh, the age of the earth, I'm out. And one guy said I was out because I dated the book of Daniel wrong. Uh, uh, for some of these probation officers, the, the, the test that you have to pass... Uh, is, is, is pretty strenuous and you have to be pretty much 100% certain on every one of them. You have to believe all these right things and you have to be certain about all of them. Otherwise, your probation is at least in question. And this view is so widespread. Sometimes more explicit, sometimes more implicit, but it permeates a great deal of the church and I think it's so misguided and I think it is so damaging. Notice, notice how self-absorbed Faithometer theology is. This is its first, first indication that something is seriously wrong here. How, how self-absorbed it is. It forces you to always be inside your head. How am I doing? Do, am I believing the right things? Am I believing them strong enough? I, I need to maybe increase my, the, the, the intensity of my belief. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. But it, it, you're inside your head. It's a self-absorbed way of, of looking at things. We'll talk about it being all about Jesus. We talk about it being all about God. But in faithometer theology, everyone is out to save their own behind. We're all just trying to, to get that register meter up there. We're all just trying to complete the, faith, the faithometer prison release program. It's all about me saving my own skin. As I mentioned last week, we'll, we'll talk a lot about grace and mercy, salvation by grace. But if you look at this thing objectively in faithometer theology, it really is a form of salvation by works. Because you're saved by cranking that self-certainty up there, convincing yourself it's salvation by self-certainty. It's, it's salvation by how certain you are of your own rightness. It's, a, it's certainty by how good you are at playing this psychological gimmick game. Heaven and hell are wagered on how good you are at playing that game. And ultimately, folks, it's a form of idolatry. Because we're not getting our life and our worth and our security and our identity just by trusting in the mercy of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. We're getting our well-being and our sense of security and our identity by how good we are at cranking up the faithometer meter and convincing ourselves that we're right. The biblical concept of faith has got nothing to do with that kind of magical thinking. It's got nothing to do with a psychological gimmick. The biblical concept of faith is not something that you can go inside your head and manipulate. The biblical concept of faith is a covenantal concept, a relational concept. And when it's present, it's visible. It's a relational concept, a covenant concept, and when it's present, it's visible. We frequently say this around here because it's so foundational. But if you want to understand the biblical idea of faith, uh, don't go to a court of law analogy or a court of law paradigm. In fact, if you want to understand not just the biblical concept of faith, but also of salvation and pretty much everything, don't go to a court of law paradigm where God's the judge and you're the, the, the defendant. Go to a marriage paradigm where God's the husband and you're the wife. Uh, because God's ideal relationship with us is not that of a judge to a guilty defendant. God's ideal relationship is that of a husband to a wife. And so we need to construe everything in that context. So faith is not some kind of psychological gimmick where I'm trying to talk myself into, into self-certainty to impress a judge. 
Faith is a matter of me pledging my trust in my heavenly Lord and pledging my, my trustworthiness to my heavenly Lord. So when you're trying to understand the nature of faith, don't think of somebody trying to do the Wizard of Oz lion thing, I do, I do, I do believe. Rather, to understand the nature of faith, think of two people at a wedding giving their wedding vows, saying, I do. When Shelly and I, 32 years ago, said, I do. When I said, I do, I wasn't giving a report about the level of psychological certainty I had about various and sundry matters. I wasn't looking inside my head when I said, I do. When I said, I do, it wasn't about me so much as it was about her and our togetherness. Faith, biblical faith, like biblical love, is an other-oriented concept. Far from, instead of getting us inside of ourselves, it should get us outside of ourselves looking at another. To say, I do, means I trust you, and I pledge to be trustworthy towards you. It's an other-oriented concept. And what Shelley and I and every married couple needs to know when you go into marriage, and this counts, this applies for every deep friendship as well. But what we need to know is the, blessed, the blessedness of our marriage will be directly proportionate to how much we trust and how trustworthy we are. And that's basically what Jesus is getting at when he says, according to your faith, be it unto you. According to your trust and trustworthiness, be it unto you. Um, It's not a magical gibbetry thing that we do in our head. It's a trust thing. It's a relational thing. In fact, you could go into the Gospels and take out the word faith. Whenever Jesus talks about faith, take out faith and put in trust, and you're not going to change the meaning of the passages very much at all. It's a covenantal term. It's covenantal trust, which brings us to the main point of this message, and it's this. The evidence, Holy Spirit, help us to receive this. The evidence that we're exercising covenantal faith isn't found by getting inside of our head and looking for a non-existent faithometer. The evidence that we're exercising covenantal faith is that we're, in fact, living out that faith. And that's why it's always visible. Covenantal faith is always visible. That's why Jesus could see their faith. He saw their faith because faith is an action term. When you, when, you, when you have a trust in someone and you're walking trustworthy with them to that degree, it impacts your behavior. And so it's evidenced. That's why James says in James chapter 2 that faith that doesn't have any deeds with it is useless. It's useless. It really has the connotation of it's not real faith. It's not real faith. You're, you're tricking yourself if you think you believe and yet it doesn't impact your behavior at all. Well, then it's not real faith. It's a useless faith. If you can't see it, it ain't real. So how do you know... To stay with the marriage paradigm, how do you know that you're exercising faith in your marriage? Well, it's not rocket science. It really is not very complicated at all. Think about it. When you got married, you promised to love and cherish and honor and support your uh, wife and your hus- or, or your husband, as the case may be. And you promised to do that for better or for worse, in good times or in bad times. So the question is, drum roll, are you doing that? Are you doing that? If you are, you're exercising covenantal faith. If you're not, you're not. It doesn't matter what you're convincing yourself you are doing, you ain't exercising covenantal faith. Are you keeping the vow of your covenant? And this applies to deep friendships as well. Whatever the, the relationship is, are you honoring the terms of that, uh, of, of that relationship? If you are, you are exercising covenantal faith. If you're not, you're not exercising covenantal faith. In fact, notice this. 
When a, when a spouse goes inside their head to determine whether or not they have, they're exercising faith towards their other spouse, it's usually an indication that they're lacking faith. Think about this. Why would a husband or wife in a good, healthy marriage all of a sudden get self-absorbed inside their own cranium and start asking questions like this? How certain am I of my marriage? How much do I trust my, my, my covenantal spouse? How much do I feel? What's my feeling of, of love towards my spouse on this day? See, spouses who live in that self-absorbed psychological world are either on their way to trouble or they're already in trouble. And that's why they're in their head. Think about it. Because maybe you didn't get the memo, but when you say, I do, at the altar, part of what it means is you're not going to ask those questions anymore. (laughs) Somebody say amen. Uh, The time for asking those questions is done. Because when you say, I do, you're, you're pledging your life to move in a certain direction, to walk in a certain direction, to reframe your existence in a, in a, in a certain way, to no longer think as a me, but to think as a we, and, 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 to, and to redo all that. And one of the things that that direction does is it cuts out all of those getting inside of my self-absorbed uh, head with my self-absorbed questions. It rules all of those out. When you say, I do, you commit to going in a, in a certain direction. And really now, the state of your psychological certainty and the level of your feelings on some kind of register inside of you is irrelevant. Now, it helps if they're there once in a while, but, but whether they're there or not doesn't determine whether you're having faith in the relationship or not. What determines that is, are you living a certain way? Are you moving in a certain direction? It's always visible, and the evidence that you're doing it is that it is visible. And you'll receive according to your faith, for better or for worse. If you're in your head asking questions like, how certain am I of my marriage? How, how much do I trust my, 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 uh, my, my partner here? Um, if you're asking those kind of questions, according to your faith be done to you, you are going to have a sucky marriage. Amen. And if you're doing that with your best friend, you're going to have a sucky friendship. You're heading in that direction. Whatever you're having faith for, that is what you're going to get. And, and so it's a matter of what kind of quality relationship you have. And going inside yourself is a sign that you're pulling out of the relationship. That something is seriously wrong. Something is off here. The best way to know how much faith you have in a covenant partner, in your marriage, or in your best friend, is not by going inside your head and looking for the faithometer thing. The best way to know whether you're living out faith in your marriage or your friendship is to ask your spouse or your friend. To ask them. Or to ask others who are in on your life. What do you see? Because faith is always visible. Am I, am I honoring my wife? Am I, am I being a good husband? Am I being faithful? Am I living out my, my covenant vows? Honey, you tell me. Or my best friends, what do you see here? And in fact, that's a very good thing to do because we're so prone to being self-deluded. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. To know the extent of your faith Don't get self-absorbed and go on an endless search in the labyrinth of your messed-up psychic world looking for a non-existent faithometer. I wrote it down so I would say it. I I am going to say it again. Listen to that. To know the extent of your faith. Don't get self-absorbed and go on an endless search in the labyrinth of your messed-up psychic world looking for a non-existent faithometer. Because it ain't there. It's not there. Rather, honestly... 
take this set of questions and, and ask them honestly of yourself and of your spouse and or of your best friends, those who are in on your life. Ask questions like this. Am I moving in the direction of the kingdom? Because remember, it's not where you're at. It's the direction that you're moving. And so, and, and so you ask, do you see a flow in my life here that I'm reflecting kingdom values? Uh, am I really a person? who is trusting God for, for my worth and my identity and my life and my security. What do you see? Uh, uh, those who are involved in my life, do I reflect the kind of person who really is trusting in God for my worth? Or, or am I really getting life from my house and my car and my success or what people think about me or my abilities, my achievement, my good looks or what have you? And see, people close to you will know that. And if you give them permission, and we all should, well, then, then they can speak. Say, well, here's what we see. It's not an indicting thing. Uh, it, it's just an honesty thing. It may even be a real affirming thing. Because I don't know how it works with you, but sometimes I feel like I just suck as a Christian. And, and if I ask this question, the friends will remind me about stuff that I've, I've, I've grown in, but I just got used to it, and, and so it no longer registers in my own brain. It's like, because it, you, you, you define a new normal. And so it becomes normal to you, so you can feel like you're really not doing very well. But in fact, it's because you're doing so well. You've, you've grown a lot. You just got so used to it. And you forget that normal people in the world don't live like this. So it's not a matter of, of being indicted or anything. It's a matter of saying, let's get real. Am I manifesting uh, the, the character of God in my relationships? Am I trusting in the character of God? Am I and are we living as a faithful bride in Christ? Does, is it reflected in our life? Do we reflect the values of our heavenly husband? Are we reflecting the values of our heavenly king? Are we abstaining from adultery with the gods of this world? The gods of wealth and comfort and esteem and convenience and, and, and power. Are we abstaining from adult, uh, adultery? Not just idolatry, but adultery. Because all of that sin is, is a way of committing adultery with our, our, our heavenly spouse. Is, is our faith visible in ways? Do we reflect the distinct values of our true citizenship, our true kingdom. Do we display, am I displaying, are we displaying, and we need people in our life who can say this out loud. Are we, are, are, we, are we reflecting our singular allegiance to the kingdom that is coming and how we live? It, 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 faith is always visible. Now, it's not always visible in the same way. It doesn't always look the same way for everybody, and you've got to avoid this too, because some of the probation officers out there, they have a model for what it, it, how it was uh, supposed to always look. And they might say things like, well, if you don't live where we live, and you're not doing the ministries that we're involved in, you haven't made the sacrifice we live in, and, and, and if you're still living out there and driving that kind of car, well, then you obviously don't have real faith, and they're just judges walking around. And you've got to rebuke that as well. Only the people who are really in on your life that you invited in your life can know, can know the visible difference it's making on the whole. Although sometimes it's good to go to your enemies and ask these questions. Do I reflect the character of Jesus uh, in the way that I respond to you, even though you're the grouchiest boss I've ever had in my life? Uh, you know, you maybe don't want to put that in there while you're asking them, but... But we want, we, see, we, we need to get eyes outside of ourselves uh, who, that can see the visibility of our faith. One of the things, Holy Spirit, again, help us to be honest here. This is something that just landed on me this week, and it, it, it has a weight to it that we're supposed to pay attention to. One of the reasons why I think faithometer theology is so popular in our culture, and why there's a part of us that's so attracted to it, is that it allows us to avoid all of the kind of questions I just asked. Think about it. If I can just go inside of my head 
and do the, the lying on the Wizard of Oz sort of thing. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. If I can convince myself that in fact I believe because of some kind of feeling of certainty that I have, well then how I actually live is pretty irrelevant. The criteria, that's not on, that's not on the radar for the criteria. That's altogether irrelevant. I, I, I'm in my head, I got this little certainty in my head and now how I actually live becomes quite irrelevant. It's a little bit like uh, a, a, a deluded husband to stay with the marriage analogy now. Who, who convinces himself that he loves his wife. Somehow he does some trick in his head because it's all psychological gimmickry. And he just, oh, I feel such love for my wife. I love her so much. She's so dear. And yet he's never around, doesn't support her, doesn't ever uh, court her. They, they never do anything together. Maybe treats her like the house pet. Oh, but he's sure that he loves her because he's got this feeling on the inside. Dude, you're deluded. You're deluded. If you want to know whether you're a good husband or not, don't go inside your head because your head is messed up. If you want to know whether you're a good husband or not, ask your wife. And ask friends who know you, friends, friends who have got some kind of healthy model of what a good husband would be. But see, it's easy to go into this little self-deluded world and convince yourself of something. That's why the people who are prone towards self-delusion are good at this sort of faith, faith, faithometer theology. They can convince themselves of something that is not real. We do the same thing in our relationship with God. Oh, yes, I, I just have such a love for Jesus. And yet, if there's nothing in our life that is impacted by it, it's not reflected in any way, that's delusional. That falls under James. Faith that doesn't, isn't, isn't visible uh, is not genuine faith. Or it might work in a different way. Maybe you're not good at convincing yourself of, of some truth that isn't reflected in reality. Maybe you're rationally and really grounded in reality, and so you're not good at the gimmetry kind of faith, the faithometer kind of faith. But you can still uh, benefit by it by going inside your head and wrestling forever with the thing. Uh, let's wrestle with that faithometer. And, 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 and struggle with it. So you, you go in your head and see, this is the one that, that is most tempting to me. And so you're asking the question, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to trust in Jesus? Uh, you know, and, and maybe if I get it figured out, I'll actually do it. But in the meantime, there's so much to struggle with and wrestle with. And, and how exactly are we to interpret the Bible? Is this story meant, exegetically speaking now, not hermeneutics so much as exegesis? Is it meant to be literal or is it figurative? And, 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 and what depends on this? And what is the real ontology of, 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 of judgment and blah, 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 blah? And those are wonderful questions, great questions, interesting questions, questions that impact our life for sure. I write books on those questions. Yay, questions. But see, if we're not careful, that can become part of our self-delusion where we actually think that we're doing the kingdom because we're thinking about it. And this is like a philosophical husband who sits around and and is always asking the question, what does it mean to love your wife and and to to, to be a trustworthy partner? What's the meaning of that? What does it look like? And they never get around to actually doing it. (laughs) But see, it's not rocket science. Go back to your wedding vows and do them. It's It's really that simple. Are you doing it? And there's a place for asking all those kind of questions. Those are great questions, evangelistically and apologetically important questions, but they should never be distracting questions. I've got a million questions. The longer I live, the more questions I have. And and honestly, my faithometer, uh, you know, insofar as I can measure how certain I am of this or that particular belief, whatever, it's it's all over the chart. Some of you will be really surprised. A lot of the stuff that the probation officers say are absolute criteria for heaven and hell, I'm 50-50 on. But I don't think they're all that important, (laughs) Uh, which is maybe the worst thing you can can commit in their eyes. Uh, You know, it's all over the place. But for me to be a kingdom person, there's only one question I've got to ask. It's not rocket science. And that is this, do I have enough confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord to commit my life to him? 
And that doesn't even mean that I'm, psych- I'm, I'm psychologically certain of it. Maybe I am on some days and other days not. But am I willing to wager my life living this way, going in this direction? Uh, do I have enough confidence to say, I do? And if I do have enough confidence to say I do, now it's time to commit and shut the door on that one. Stop going inside my head on that one. Start living that out. Now, the important, for all the questions I like to wrestle with and, and that, that, that are good to wrestle with, the most important question is not one that's answered by manipulating something in my head. The most important question is lived out this way. What does it look like for me today, right now? to manifest the terms of my covenant, my relationship with Jesus Christ. What, is it, what, what does it look like right here, right now, in this moment? It's always present for me to love you with the love of Christ and for me to love enemies with the love of Christ and to me to forgive and to, for me to manifest the values of the kingdom. Am I doing the I do? See, it's not an intellectual question. It's, if you will, an existential question. It's an action question. It's a question that we answer not by falling into the cranium of our brain, but we answer it with our volition, with our will, by doing stuff moment by moment. We manifest what is already there, the faith that is there. And inside of that, now we still have a lot of questions perhaps, but we answer them and we ask them from the inside of the faith rather than as a precondition to it. This whole thing about, it, well, once I get clear on this issue, then I'll be able to commit. It's kind of like the person, and there are a number of people out there, who can never get around to getting married because they have to be absolutely certain of everything before they say, I do. Well, you know what? You're, you're, you know, get used to living the single life because you're going to stay single. <laughs> There's only really one important question to ask when you're getting married, and that's that you have enough confidence in this person to commit your life to them. And then all the other stuff, how good they are at fixing sinks or not. Now you answer those questions from the inside of the covenant. And so also in our relationship with God. There's a lot of questions, but see, this is, this is why we're Israelites. We, we wrestle with a lot of stuff out loud, but to, what makes us disciples is that the center is defined. The lordship of Jesus is defined. Our life is submitted to him. And so I, I end with just the, the, this challenge and, and these encouragements. Number one, there are some folks here who need to be freed from that faithometer theology, and I pray you get freed. And if you're burdened by that, and there are a number of people I know who are, uh, maybe you even want to come up afterwards and pray and, and just, just, to, just to get free of that. Although sometimes it doesn't happen overnight. It's, it, it's, you got to reframe things in, in your life. But to get freed from that. Some folks have been massively wounded by that theology. Because you lived in the it's my fault kind of thing. And I pray you'll just receive healing. To get healed from that. And there's those of us who the issue is not to getting freed so much or, or getting healed so much. The issue is being confronted. Are we, are we doing the delusional thing? Are we escaping? Are we using the questions uh, as, as, as ways of, of, of getting away from actually living it? Or are we doing the delusional thing by getting inside of our cranium, our head, and convincing ourselves that we love Jesus? And it's a way of avoiding asking the real important questions of, is my faith visible? And I want to challenge everybody in this room and everybody who's listening through podcasts or some other means. To ask one person, the person who's maybe closest to you, or at least who shares uh, your value system, could be your spouse, could be your best friend, somebody else, just to give them permission to say, what do you see? The one who knows how you spend your time and how you spend your money, who knows your real attitudes, uh, the one who's on the inside, uh, to say, how is my faith visible? And maybe how is our faith visible? And what needs to change if it's not visible? 
And when it needs to change, just know this. That's not a matter of saying, your mark is go, we're going to just try harder. It's a matter of, once again, submitting yourself to the Lordship of Christ and saying, Lord, change us from the inside out. Send your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your power. Give her, re- rekindle the flame of love in our heart so that we, in fact, live out our covenant vows. Because vows that aren't lived out are simply delusional. We're called not to be a delusional people, a Wizard of, a wizard of Oz, I do, I do, I do sort of people, a people rather who say I do once and now live it out day by day, moment by moment. Pray with me here. Father, we, we are, are, all of us who put our trust in you are your bride, and we, we want to be a faithful bride. Not just in word or internal sentiment, but we want to be a faithful bride in our life. Uh, Father, give us, uh, remind us of your grace that gives us permission to be real with ourselves and with one another, even when reality bites. Lord, help us to have the courage, the confidence in your grace to be honest. We don't need a pretender or anything, Lord God, but just to face the faith to face reality. And then, Father, send your fire to give us a love, a love that actually does change the way we do life and in every area, Lord God. Give us the fire to be a passionate bride who lives out our love for you and lives out your values day in and day out. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's bride said, God bless you guys. Love you. Go out, live out your faith. The altar is open. <laughs>